I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. is the music of Tones on Tail, which features my guest today on the program, Glenn Campling. Let me tell you a little bit about Glenn Campling and Tones on Tail. This is a brief life, Rudyard Kipling once wrote, but in its brevity, it offers us some splendid moments, some meaningful adventures. Now, I don't know if Rudyard Kipling was a goth, but I could kind of see it. What'd you do last night, Rudyard? I don't know, man. I worked on Just So Stories and listened to Bauhaus in the dark. Makes sense, right? Well, anyway, goth or not, Kipling was right about those splendid moments that come from this brief life. And one of those splendid moments is a band called Tones on Tail. They were indeed splendid, but they were also brief. Remember that Chicago album, Chicago 19? Well, it was called that because it was their 19th album. If you loved Tones on Tail and you were thinking there would be a Tones on Tail 19, you would have been very, how should I put this, wrong. Tones on Tail were, to put it bluntly, a kind of interstitial band that existed between Bauhaus and Love and Rockets. The common denominators were Daniel Ash and Kevin Haskins, of course. But, in addition to the goth royalty of the band, was their third and no less vital member, bassist Glenn Campling. Technically, Tones on Tail got going in 1982, while Bauhaus was still an ongoing concern. Now, originally, Haskins wasn't in the fold, and the band was a duo comprised of Campling and Ash, who were not only friends from art school, they were also flatmates, and Campling also worked as a roadie for, well, you guessed it, Bauhaus. Tight circle, right? Goths stick together. Well, (laughs) kind of. Taking their name from the way calibration tones were recorded on the tail of reel-to-reel tape, Tones on Tail's self-titled EP came out in 1982 on 4AD Records. Beggar's Banquet put out their next single, There's Only One, and when Bauhaus broke up in 1983, Tones on Tail welcomed drummer Kevin Haskins into the fold, and the trio put out the Burning Skies EP. In 1984, they put out their sole album, the fabulous Pop record, which is a percussive collection of peppy goth rhythms, dark dance grooves, and ethereal vocals that whisper and grind with haunting finesse. In October of 1984, which was 35 years ago, a number that reminds us all that we're, you know, old, Tones on Tail played 12 shows in the United States, and oddly, as dark as they were, in regular Clockwork Orange style, they went even darker. 
wearing all white on stage. Yeah. Then they came home, put out the Christian Says single, and promptly broke up. Why? Remember your Kipling, kids. Brief but splendid. Get used to it. Haskins and Ash went on to form Love and Rockets while Campling. Well, I'll let Glenn tell you what he did, but let me end by saying this. Tones on tail, to quote Shakespeare, strutted and fretted their hour upon the stage and then were heard no more. But they never really went away. Their music has been heard throughout the years all across the pop culture spectrum. From the rave scene in Beverly Hills 90210, yeah, there was a rave scene, uh, to Gross Point Blank, to a Ford commercial, to Stranger Things, to Rick and Morty, Tones on Tail may have been dark, but time has proven them to be evergreen. Now, Campling was out of music for a while, but he's back with the very innovative Lone Station band, and he's uncovered some very cool Tones on Tail live footage that is essential viewing. You have to check it out. But wait until we're done here. All right, here's my chat with Glenn Campling of Tones on Tail right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Years ago now, I mean, I was a uh, get up at midday and go to bed at six in the morning kind of guy. Right. But, uh, you know, family guy, you have children and all of that changes. And uh, your routine fits around them, don't it? Every, everything became very, very normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was that, just out of curiosity, I'm just kind of curious, was that a hard adjustment or did you recognize that was a necessary adjustment? Uh, it was a necessary adjustment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you revolve around your kids, don't you? So. Um, and also the luxury of having the time to sort of, you know, make music and play music also, you know, is, is, <laughs> it also disappears, I think. So it was a long time before I could, uh, really sit down and mess with music again, because that was a bit of a luxury, you know, when you got children, young kids, everybody will tell you that. Was that difficult for you to think, to think like, did you walk by your base and go, uh, I can't even look at it? Not at all, no. Really? Too busy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it hung on the wall for years and years and gathered dust. and uh, uh, Yeah, I think I've only just recently dusted it down, actually. Well, what was that process like when you dusted it down? Did it, did it feel, did the, how did that feel? Oh, it just felt like yesterday. In fact, it's still got the same strings on from uh, <laughs> from 1984, uh, and it's still in tune. But it took a bit of time to get the uh, pickups working, and uh, there was a few dry pots there, but yeah, it sprang into life. So there really was no way to balance a creative life with a, with a parental duty? Um, no, not at all. No, you, you, you just... I mean, look, uh, at the time I didn't have a band, I didn't have income, uh, a, a good, healthy income from music. So, uh, you know, you have to you have to be realistic, you have to find work, you have to support your family. So, um, yeah, for a long time I was well out of the picture. Yeah. 
but Glenn, you're you're such a practical guy. <laughs> uh, I think everybody who is a parent has to be practical. You know, I look I look at at Kevin uh, from Bauhaus, and I look at him playing with his daughters, and I think that's really cool. Um, yeah. Is there is there any kind of musical strain running through your kids that that kind of thing could happen on your end? Oh well, yes. I mean, Charlotte, uh, my daughter, she. She didn't know my my dark past, if you like, until she was about seven, and I, I got a uh, a rather healthy royalty check come from uh, uh, the Fun Loving Criminals when they sampled Scooby Snacks, mm. and uh, she kind of started to question me about about what I used to do, you know, and uh, she was absolutely blown away, and uh, she. She took an instant interest in playing the bass. So uh, I kind of said to her, well, look, you can borrow my bass, okay? And if you're still playing it in one year, I'll buy your first bass. So bless her, she used to strap it to her back, and this is a, a fairly heavy bass guitar with a metal neck. And she used to take it to school once a week and impress her mates with it. But then she did actually, you know, she loved playing it. And she was still playing it a year later, and uh, I bought her first bass for her. Wow. So how old are your children, just out of curiosity? Uh, it's just one, just the one. Uh, she's 27 now. She's 27. And so is there? could there be a, a, a collaborative element between the two of you? Oh, we have done. We have collaborated on uh, one or two little things, you know. Together. Oh. Uh, I just haven't released them yet. So maybe one day I'll release it, yeah. That's really cool. Um, do you, in, in terms of the preservation society around Tones on Tail, did, did it surprise you, uh, the enduring quality? I mean, at the time, did you know that this is something that will be evergreen? I mean, how could you possibly know that? But uh, I think we're all blown away with that. Really? Uh, it is just quite incredible, really. I mean, what it, it's been, what, 35 years? Yeah. Um, we're still... We're, we're still popular to some degree. I mean, I, I've put up a lot of uh, video work that, that's come to light recently. Uh, and, I, you know, YouTube, it's hit 7,000 hits so far in about 10 days. So uh, it's a great result. And, and the response has been incredible, you know. Uh, I, I think... Uh, Everybody seems very grateful for it. Very big reaction in the States uh, and quite a bit in the UK. And, you know, little pockets all over the world. So uh, it's been very interesting. I was telling Kevin that, you know, I'm from California. I'm from the Bay Area. And yeah. Bauhaus, Tones on Tail, man, we we wore those shirts here in sunny California. And we, you know, we romanticized um, that sort of, you know, gothic existence o over there on the other side of, of uh, the world. And, you know, for us, it was such the opposite of how we were living that it, it was it, it was almost more attractive because of, you know, geography. It's quite strange because I'm really, I feel like last of the dinosaurs because I'm, I'm the last one here in Northampton. All the other guys, uh, I think Pete still lives in Turkey and the other guys live in your part of the world. So uh, I was the remainer. 
Were you um, originally from Northampton? Yes. Yeah. Were you pals at all with Pat Fish? Uh, I went to see Pat's a few weeks ago, actually. He was playing at a local bar in Northampton. Uh, and uh, it was very enjoyable. Did you guys hang out in the in the 80s? Uh, what, with Pat? Yeah. No, not really, no. Uh, Pat is more a friend of uh, Dave Haskins, David J. Right. Uh, they, I think they wrote a lot of material together. Yeah, and the the Northampton scene to me always seemed very tight. Um, you know, there was a lot of sort of um, you know the Haskins guys did some stuff with the Jazz Butcher, and then it just seemed like there was a lot of crossover. Yes, uh, but you see, I suppose Dave uh, and uh, Jazz Butcher that they, they are very similar genres. They they write ballad material. That's not my kind of thing, really. Right. So. Uh, yeah, I kind of, I'm not fully into it, but I did enjoy listening to Pat's gig the other day. And he was playing some really lovely guitar licks, you know. But it really, it's not my cup of tea. I'm just, I'm just curious about friendships. Um, with all this time that's passed, you seem like a guy who has stayed in touch with people and um, no bridges are burned, um, no yeah. awkward moments. Um, what, what's the secret to, to being, to being a good friend after all these years? It depends who the friend is. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Me and Danny are, are pretty much strangers now. I, I hadn't spoken to Danny for a long, long time. Uh, and Kevin as well. Uh, they are very difficult, evasive guys to get hold of sometimes. And, uh. You know, we try and keep in touch over business matters because, uh, you know, we still have to stay in touch for decision-making purposes. But, uh, you know, uh, one of those things, they're over there, I'm over here. So, Well, that's kind of a bummer. I mean, but it certainly isn't. There's certainly no bad blood. You just sort of fell out of touch. Uh, pretty much. Um, I don't know. You know... <laughs> There's, there's always there's things that have been said and touched on over the years that you read about and you just say, well, God, that's not true or, you know, that's just a load of rubbish, you know. Uh, so I, I can't help feeling sometimes uh, where I've read a particular thing that's poss possibly been said by Dan or Kevin, uh, I think it's it's been you know, a little bit made up for their own benefits. So I kind of get a little bit uh, upset about those sort of things. Yeah. I'm happy to do my own thing. So Yeah. Uh, um, I want to talk to you about your own thing in general. I mean, what right now are you in terms of the current creative moment in your life? What are you, what are you up to right now? Uh, well, I've been doing the, uh, uh, the live footage, Tons on Tail stuff, uh, uh, that came to light through uh, Graham Bentley, the ex house manager. Hate to call him that, but um, uh, he was a prolific video man. He's got absolutely tons of footage of early house days. And, you know, he had a video camera perched on his shoulder 
almost 24-7 in the old days, and he would, he would shoot everything and anything. Uh, and he just happened to turn up at the, uh, uh, the Night Moves gig in Glasgow. And funnily enough, that night was one of our best gigs. It was great. It was, it was a real joy that he'd come along and shot the whole thing. But uh, he'd also got uh, the, uh, the uh, audio from the desk. He asked Pete Edwards to uh, tape the whole thing. Oh. So fortunately for me, 35 years later, he hands me a disc with all this material on and the uh, audio. And I just thought instantly, wouldn't it be great to sort of weld these two together and produce a really good, rich sound? And, you know, the video quality is what it is. It's, it's what it was on the day. Uh, but it's, it's kind of good enough to give people an insight into what we were like because you know from the, the comments i've read so many people are, are so grateful to see that footage because so many people didn't see us and that they <laughs> we, we never made a video an official video so uh you know it, it's a good insight for people to see it's great for me to see so tones on tail was a really interesting thing because we you know when we got into it Back in the eighties, there was there was no way of finding out anything really about it. It just sort of popped up, and then it sort of vanished. And so it was it one of those things where it disappeared. Yeah, right, right. It disappeared, and as a result, at least for us over here, um, I think the band took on a kind of mystical quality. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. Yeah, uh, I think uh, the. Uh, I think you're leading me towards the question, what happened to us? Why did we <laughs> Oh, Glenn, am I that transparent? Come on. Well, oh, you know, I, I, think it's a, I think it's a good question and it should be told. Should All be right. What, did, what happened? Uh, well, where do I start? I, I think we were, we got to the end of the American tour and uh, I think... Uh, Daniel is not the best person at the end of a tour. All he wants to do is go away, get on his Harley and blow away the cobwebs for about six weeks. So we got off the plane and Danny's kind of in this mode like he didn't want to do this anymore. And I kind of thought, well, leave him for a few weeks, uh, let him rest, come back and he'll be full of beans and he'll be saying, right, let's get on with things. But no, it just didn't happen that way. And uh, I think, looking back on it, that there were some key moments where I got the impression, certainly, that Danny wasn't looking forward to doing the next album. Uh, I think part, part of the problem was, uh, when me and Danny started, we were just a sort of casual uh, band, a, a side project of our house, uh, and we could be as creative as as we liked, whenever we liked. But when Bearhouse finished and we kind of stepped up, I think the whole thing became a very different animal. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you, you're kind of, to do something full on, full time is, you know, quite stressful. And uh, I think also Daniel struggled on his own. Uh, although he wrote some very good lyrics, 
I think he struggled with lyrics. And I think it became clear at one time to me, looking back on it, that he showed a desire to work with uh, David J again. And I kind of ignored all the warning signs and I shouldn't have done. So, <laughs> uh, so the inevitable happened, I think. He kind of uh, uh, hung up tones on tail and went to work with Dave. And I think that's the, the best truth you're going to find. But if, if you had paid attention to those, what, what would that have changed ultimately? Uh, well, that's, you know, I've asked myself that question. I don't think anything would. Uh, I think it was also suggested at one time that uh, Dave should be included as a fourth member, which basically, to cut a long story short, would have ended up sounding like Love and Rockets, I think. Right. With Glenn maybe playing keyboards or, and then eventually getting ejected. Uh, so, so I think probably the same thing would have happened. So. Were you um, friends with David J, or did you have any feelings about him? Um, yeah, I get on all right with Dave now. Uh, I, I, you know, Dave is quite an aloof guy, really. So um, uh, personally, I, I didn't not get on with him, but I, I didn't really have much to do with him. Just out of, out of curiosity, what was your take on Love and Rockets? Did you did, were you a fan of the band? Did you like what they were doing, or, or was that not? <laughs> uh, not really. No, I, was, I think it was a good sound for them. Yeah, um, but that that's what you get. That's the partnership you get from uh, Danny and Dave. You know, good combination. Uh, Dave being a, a great writer, he's a good wordsmith. And uh, I think that took a lot of pressure off Danny. That that left him to be more creative musically. So uh, I, I, in that respect, it worked, you know. What was musically, what was your thing? Like when, at the time, what were you really into? I don't know, maybe 82 to 87 or 6. What were you, what were you listening to primarily? Wow. Uh, anything and everything. I, I, <laughs> um I remember the you know mid eighties. I started to get into the rave scene, into the because things suddenly got electronic again. Uh, so I, I really kind of uh, embraced uh, the, the the electronic scene, the rave scene, the dance scene. And uh, I, I guess at one point, I think when we, me and Danny were talking about a second album, uh, we were both on different footings because I, I kept saying you know uh, I wanted to go towards the, 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 the kind of electro dance kind of music club music you know Blue Monday New Order was a big hit massive uh, so I wanted to go in that kind of direction uh, and Danny said at the same, in the same mouthful he wanted to go more ballady so it was kind of clear we were we were parting company in in so many ways you know i would imagine that you might have been on board for the first two records but i would imagine the the last couple of love and rockets records probably didn't interest you at all no well i haven't heard all, all of them to be honest oh well, <laughs> well <then. laughs> so I, I have no idea i've heard one or two you know uh, yeah uh, of their most popular tracks but uh, i i never followed them so 
when you were growing up, what was your, in terms of your taste, what did your record collection look like in the late seventies? What were your sort of sonic companions for your teenage years? I suppose, um, I, I was into progressive rock, I suppose you would call it then. Um, I think I heard an interview recently with Danny and he kind of poo pooed progressive rock. And, uh, but that was the foundation we all came from. Uh, and it was so varied. I mean, I, I was I was telling a friend tonight, I was a mad, mad Hawkwind uh, fan. You know, I used to love Hawkwind and I used to follow them around like some kind of mad groupie, you know. And I used to go to their gigs uh, all, as often as I could. Uh, but I used to like Alice Cooper. I liked uh, the album Billion Dollar Babies and stuff like that. School's Out was a fantastic single, you know. Uh, I was into T-Rex, early T-Rex. Uh, you, you know, you see where I'm coming from? I do. And I wonder if you like the New York Dolls. Uh, no. Uh, well, Iggy Pop and the Stooges was sure. more my kind of thing. And, uh, I mean... Iggy dates back a very long time, so uh, yeah. And the MC5, uh, maybe? Nope. No, man, you're a hard oh, guy I, to pin down, Glenn. I can't. Oh, no. <laughs> 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 um, I, I could go on and on and on about what I like and what I don't like, but uh, it, it would be so varied. It, it, it's uh, you know, I kind of I haven't changed my musical taste either. I still. I can go back and listen to, like everybody can. I can. I, I love Hendrix. I can listen to Hendrix anytime and never get bored of it. You know. So the the stuff I loved then, I still love now. Uh, and I mean the, the the kind of stuff I love um, now, really. Although they're long gone, Massive Attack. Yeah. So I think they're still touring. Actually, yeah. But. Uh, but Left Field, Future Sound of London, all those sort of bands, they were great. And Faithless in particular, they, they are very inspirational bands. I love Faithless. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Really interesting stuff. Okay, well, let me ask you this. For, from Faithless to – okay, I would say this. From Hawkwind to Faithless, there has to be a through line of the oh. stuff that, that appeals to you – Sonically, like, like, what do you think it is that all these things have in common that appeal to you? Uh, well, I'm a, I don't know. I love, um, I love a good beat. I, I love a good bass line. Uh, I love electronic trickery. I love all that. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, another band I used to love was Mahavishnu Orchestra. And, uh, listening to electric violin and things like that. I used to absolutely adore that band. And, uh, you know, I revisit those things and they still sound good.
of bands like Genesis, like with Peter Gabriel at his most artsy or Bowie, like did did that kind of thing appeal to you? Yeah, Genesis, uh, they came out with uh, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. That was a good album. And Genesis were, were great when they were Genesis. Uh, when they split, they became a different band for me. So uh, uh, early Genesis, great, you know. It's interesting to me about how uh, like I listened to certain records I loved when I was 16 or 17. I don't know if I feel the same way. Sometimes you age out or you grow out of things. and Yeah, um, you, grow, you grow out of things. But, you know, there's a lot of things you carry with you over the years. Uh, now the things that, that uh, led you to where you are now. So uh, don't deny them. No, just embrace and have fun with them. Because they are the things that... that that, that, have, that, that have given you your musical education, I suppose. So yeah. it can't be ignored. When did you first pick up the bass? How old were you? Ooh. Cool. Um, <laughs> I was probably about 21, 23. Uh, I was roadieing for Bearhouse, and I was butt-line guy, so I used to tune the guitars and the bass. And I used to love messing around with Dave Buskin's bass. And uh, I think uh, me and Danny were living in the same place one day. And I, I'd just got a really cheap, nasty bass guitar, no amplifier, nothing. And Danny was started his solo project um, when he was in Bear House. Started working on a couple of tracks in his bedroom. And asked to borrow my drum machine. I had one of those cheap, nasty... Uh, Doctor Rhythm drum machines and um, I don't know, he just invited me to come in and play bass and that's when I started playing bass So, and that was the beginning of Turns on Tail Yeah, I mean, prior to that you had never really done much in terms of with no, musical instruments band, Never Wow, but you were you were an artsy guy, right? Like, you weren't you working with in, in artistic mediums but just not music? Well, I was a graphic designer at the time yeah. Right so I was doing uh, uh, the boring mundane graphics, but I was also doing album covers. Uh, I did a couple of Bearhouse ones, uh, and eventually, of course, did Tongues on Tail ones. My art, I'll never forget my art teacher used to say, um, he used to tell me off for, for you know, being too album cover orientated, and he said, Campling, you're never going to be uh, designing album covers. Uh, so just stop dreaming. And uh, I end up designing quite a few, and I've had a few in a in a showcase book, you know, highlighted in a showcase book. So I'd love to take it back to him one day and just say, <laughs> have a look at this, mate. <laughs> I mean, I mean, those are iconic album covers. They are. They aren't just album covers. Well, yeah. I guess uh, you don't know that at the time. You just uh, uh, you're just working. <laughs> did did the idea of doing album covers did did that interest you even after the band was over and you were raising your kid? Like, did you ever think yeah. like oh, I could do that? Yes, I still I, I I've done uh, three album covers for Natasha Atlas. Okay. Uh, uh, you know Natasha. You've heard of Natasha. Sure. Randy? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I've done three of hers. Uh, I've done uh, one with her and Trans Global Underground, uh, a couple of others. So uh, yeah, 
Are you still designing album covers now? I, d I don't really do that much graphics now. I, I've kind of grown weary of it. Uh, so I, I left the job about nine years ago um, and just launched myself into self-employment and uh, built a studio, which is um, pretty much a multimedia studio. So it acts as a graphic design studio and it acts as a recording studio for me as well. But it, it, it just suits me. It's a very selfish place. You know, it's where I work. It's it's where I can be creative again. So, uh, and that's where I produce Land Station. Do you have projects that are sort of cooking for, you know, for the next year or two? Or are you, are you sort of... Well, me and Mark, uh, we've been working on Land Station for about five years now. Okay. Uh, we've produced a debut album and a second album. Uh, we... We both we've both got lives outside of music. I mean, Mark uh, is a is a graphic design lecturer at a university, so he's got a very busy life, and it's very difficult to tie us down in the same place at the same time. Uh, so we kind of, when we're in the mood, I'll send him a track, and he'll send me back a vocal, or he'll send me a track, and I'll work on that. So we kind of write apart, and it's quite nice because, you know, there's no pressure there to do anything. We would just do when we please, if we please. So uh, it's really enjoyable. It's like it's like the early relationship of Tones on Tail, uh, when me and Danny were under no pressure to do anything, and we could just casually go into the studio and do whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted. So, so that kind of working relationship has just carried forward it's amazing when i think about you working with bauhaus in those early days um <laughs> do you look back and think like i mean the things you must have seen it must have been a very uh interesting uh unforgettable time um oh, fantastic yeah i gave up uh uh you know i'd kind of finished college i'd finished my my degree came out with uh, all sorts of, you know, accolades. And then I got a job for a couple of years as a graphic designer. And uh, it was pretty well paid for my first job. And uh, the Bauhaus thing kicked off. And I, I don't know, I just fell into places. I, I think I was just helping out. I had, a, I had a car. I think me and Kevin both had Morris Miners at the time. And uh, all of their gear used to fit into two Morris Miners. So, so we, we just, um, you know, and we just got busier and busier and busier. And uh, in the end, I had to, to leave my my fairly good job and uh, go and work for Peanuts for Bear House. <laughs> um, well, you were richer for the experience, though, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Well, that yes, the, the experience was just marvelous. You know, I've traveled all over the world and... Uh, uh, there's there's some fantastic memories, you know. Who was your guy? Like, who was your your closest friend? Would, would it have been Kevin or would it have been Peter? Like, your entry into that into that band where you say it just fell into place. Who who was your closest friend out of the, out well, of that? I fold? think um, we were all kind of knit together, I suppose, by people like Graham and uh, Pete Edwards. Uh, Pete Edwards was sound engineer. Uh, and Graham was manager and lighting guy at the time. 
Uh, and I remember in the early days in particular, we used to spend most of our time around Graham and Sue's house. It was like a little commune in those days. And <laughs> yeah. And uh, we, we, you know, they were happy days. They were great days. They were the best days, I think. The very early days are always the best days, I think. Who was the easiest to hang out with? Was it was Peter a pretty cool guy to chill with? I mean, who was Pete, the Pete and me got on fine. We were great. Uh, Danny, me and Dan were good friends. You know, we were, uh, we had lives outside of music. We were uh, big motor British motorbike uh, nuts. You know, we were mad about British bikes. I asked Dan a question, and he had to think about it. For, he said, "That's a good question. I'm going to ask you the same question." And the question is, if you see a picture of a really beautiful woman next to a really beautiful motorcycle, what do you look at first? I'll look at the motorcycle. (laughs) That's what he said. I'm too old to look at women now. (laughs) He said the same thing, man. Oh, did I? All right. It depends if if it's a really cool motorcycle. Yeah, it's got to be the motorcycle. Yeah, yeah. You you didn't have to even think about it. You went right to the motorcycle. Well, well, I'm 62. You know, I'm a bit uh, old and wrinkly now. <laughs> well, I'm right behind you, pal. Um, oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, the now in in terms of unearthing all this stuff and. Was it something that you had to clear with, with obviously with Daniel Ash, or you couldn't just throw it up there? And did that sort of cause you a little bit of uh, trepidation or whatever? No, not really. Um, uh, like I said, Daniel and Kevin are notoriously difficult to get hold of. Um, so, and I mean, you know, there's, there's been past times where they've done things, uh, they haven't consulted me. They've just gone ahead and done it. So I think we're we're all beyond the, 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 the thing about asking each other permission to do this, that, and the other. And and really, I mean, I hope they see this because I think they should be very pleased with it. I think it's a, a very good result. I've concentrated very hard on the sound quality because I know uh, the video footage is is. You know, it is what it is. It's it's 80s video. Uh, but, you know, Graham at the time who took it, he his camera was pretty much state-of-the-art in those days. You know, but then, yeah, you know, it was all filmed on Betamax, I think. Sure. And, uh, you know, that Betamax tape has survived all these years. And, uh, and, and then recently he transferred it to digital. Uh, really just to preserve all that footage that he's got. And he just came across uh, this footage uh, footage of uh, Glasgow night moves and uh, rang me up and told me about it, came over to see it. Um, and it, yeah, it is what it is. It's, it's rough and ready, but I've, I've done my best to sort of clean up things and make it interesting. And uh, in particular, I mean, if, if you're going to listen to it on YouTube, whack up your speakers because I think it sounds terrific. Well, it was good that he got that recording off the deck too. Yeah. Well, that was good. Again, good insight by Graham because yeah. uh, there, there is the actual footage where he's asking Pete Edwards, sound engineer. He said, uh, 
are you taping it tonight? And Pete said, no, I wasn't going to. And Graham says, well, can you? <laughs> so it was, it was great, you know, to have both. The video on its own is kind of, doesn't really stand up because the sound is too raw and rugged. And the live desk doesn't stand up on its own. You couldn't put that out as something on its own because, again, it's too... Uh, too dull, too flat. So, but the two combined really produces, you know, the desk tape produces a good bottom end, the, the drums and bass, and the live footage gives you the uh, the toppiness, all all the top, Danny. And in particular, Danny was his uh, guitar was never put through the um, through the PA rarely because he was so loud on stage. So. Through the light, uh, through the actual desk itself, there's not much guitar. So what I'm saying is both, both in their own right, are fairly useless. But when you combine them together, you you just get this. Uh, well, you, you get a, a great representation. When you think about having been where you were with Bauhaus, you must have seen some momentous live performances. Um, does any any particular one stand out for you uh, as being just sort of an absolutely epic show? What, the good ones or the bad ones? Well, jeez, uh, both. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, Futurama was great. Uh, that was a great gig in England. Uh, I think it was Sheffield, wasn't it? Futurama. That was at Le Leeds. It was Leeds, apparently. Um, and, you know, that, that, you know, there were moments when... Um, uh, dealing with Pete on stage was like dealing with a wild animal, you know. And if it was a good gig, then the animal in him would really surface, and uh, and we'd all be in trouble. But it was always a, a you know, the liveliest gigs were the best gigs. It, it was never, there was never a dull moment. Let's put it that way. It was uh, always busy, always frantic. Uh, uh, always fun. And you did survive it. Uh, yeah, I've got a few battle scars. Uh, I think uh, both me and Graham have got symbol uh, scars on our heads from when uh, I was trying to rebuild a, a drum kit while um, Pete the Animal was trying to pull it apart while Kevin was playing it. So... <laughs> So that, that they were amusing moments, yeah, uh, and and that happened on more than one occasion. Yeah. Were you surprised when Bauhaus announced these uh, these shows they're playing? Uh, yes, pretty much. In one way, yes, just just because of Pete's uh, health condition. I'm yeah, very right. surprised that, that they would. That he would attempt that so early, uh, kind of. I was thinking maybe next year would have been better, but I think like they've got it in their heads to strike while the iron's hot, kind of thing, you know. Yeah. I just hope they don't do that. This doesn't turn into a huge, massive tour because I don't think that's going to be good for Pete. It, it just seems like it's too too soon to do something that rigorous. Well, I've had exactly the same as what Pete had uh, three years ago. Oh. 
So I've had one stent put in. Uh, I, I don't know if it was Pete had two or three. I think he had two. Two. Uh, he will have to go back in about three months to determine whether he needs more. You have to go back for a test and, you know, if you need more, you need more. But he really has got to... And it's, it's a sad thing to say. I wouldn't want him to calm down, but he has to, you know... Uh, let's face it, he's been touring for a year with David, uh, and I think that has contributed to his health big time. I, I think yeah. he's done too much, you know. I'm sure Pete would disagree with me and tell me to go off somewhere, you know, but uh, <laughs> uh, Pete is at his best when he's in his wild animal state, you know. Now, uh, whether he can perform to that degree at the moment or whether he should, I don't know. Yeah, I and I just didn't know, you know, from a, a logistical perspective and also from a personal perspective, I didn't know those guys were going to, to ever play together again. It didn't sure didn't look likely. Well, uh, yeah, miracles do happen. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They've, they've obviously, uh, I think, you know, the whole thing has changed because of Pete's health. And I think that's provoked uh, communications between them. And they've suddenly woke up and thought, well, let's do something about it, you know. And that's fair enough. It'll, you know, they're going to put on a great show. It's going to be great. Let's hope they do big venues and not too many of them. From a, from a financial standpoint, it's probably a pretty good grab. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, there's well, bound there's to be bound money, to involved, money involved, isn't there? Well, yeah. And it, and it's so hard to make money on music these days yeah, anyway. Absolutely, yeah. You know, yeah. so more yeah. power to them. I think they should do it. Um, you know, a lot of people only earn, earn money from doing the live gigs these days. So. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, that's very true. Uh, there are sort of legacy bands, everyone from Echo and the Bunnymen to whoever. And they're still touring pretty hard, and I imagine yeah. uh, in their early sixties. And I imagine it's it's that's how they're still making their living. Yes, but there are. I mean, you know, I, I saw um, uh, footage of the Cure playing at uh, Glastonbury this year. Yeah, and they were fantastic. You know, they all and they looked like they were really enjoying it. They were well into it. And even if they were doing it for the money, they didn't look like they were doing it for the money. So, you know, there are bands out there that are still strutting the stuff from years ago. You know, we rarely hear about them. I believe Killing Joke is still touring, you know. Yeah, and Depeche Mode shows up every now and then. I think OMD yeah. are out there. Um, exactly. So, yeah, they're, they're still out there. Were you much of a Cure guy? Were they were they ever your band? Um Funnily enough, not so much, you know, when they were doing Top of the Pops and all that sort of thing, but I kind of grew into a, a, a Cure fan, early 80s, I suppose. Uh, and they came out with a fantastic album, which was a, a dub version of, um, uh, of their material. And it was, you know, it was fantastic production. I imagine that you never were a Smiths fan. Uh, no. Yeah. Uh, they did come out. I like Johnny Marr, great guitarist. Um, yeah. 
and I liked uh, I liked one Smith track, and I can't remember the name of it. I'm sorry, but it's the one with Johnny Carr, uh, Johnny Marr playing reverb guitar. House yeah, is now. I think it was it How Soon Is Now. That would be How Soon Is Now. Yeah, um, yeah, great, great track. Um, yeah, well, I'm yeah. starting. I'm getting a handle on you, Glenn. I'm understanding what you like now. I think I'm, I'm getting there. Uh, the, <laughs> um, well, man, I you know, Tones on Tail for me has always been. It's an evergreen uh, band, and for me, it it doesn't sound dated. It doesn't sound nostalgic. It just sounds fresh, and it it occupied this really weird space, um, and it, and there's no letting up. It just it remains a, a, a classic, and. Um, you know, it's a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, uh, yeah. We, uh, I think every band is just, a, a, you know, it's the characters in the band, it's the ingredients in the characters that make the mix, and uh, and that's what happens. You you take one character out or two characters out, you don't get the same thing. Uh, I think you know, I think. <laughs> Proof is Danny's been trying to replicate Tones on Tail for some time, I know that. And he's never quite found it. And that's because he hasn't got all the ingredients. You know? Right. I've never tried to replicate it because I couldn't. I know I couldn't. But uh, I still do my thing in a very similar way to the way uh, we worked as Tones. And it works for me. You must be awfully proud of, of that work. I mean, the fact that it still holds up because you know some things don't hold up, but but this does. Yeah, yeah. Not, not everything we did was uh, palatable. Uh, you know, uh, I think we came up with some uh, really wacky ones like Slender Fungus, which uh, uh, was way out there experimental. Um, uh, that was our tribute to the residents, uh, if you remember the residents. Sure. Uh, so we we kind of. It was a homage to uh, all things residents, and uh, yeah, we barely got away with that one. <laughs> I think we smoked far too many uh, things the night before we recorded that. So. <laughs> well, I'm from San Francisco. I absolutely know the residents. Um, right, right. Yeah, one of our one of our uh, you know one of our our, our offerings. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, and in terms of, you know, and as rock and roll, there, there's a, a famous saying, I can't remember who said it, but like, you know, you don't retire from rock and roll, it retires you. Um, and we've seen so many examples of it. How do you, you know, how do you get older in this industry and remain artistically vital? Do you ever wrestle with that or think about that? Or is it just knowing, just sort of knowing one's limitations and knowing one's strengths? No, no. Uh, in all honesty, the best way to deal with it is leave it. Uh, that way, you're not pressured. There's no, there's no pressure for you to do anything. It's so much nicer to, to work without the pressure of a, a record company behind you. You can do whatever you want. You've got an open book, and uh, it's, it's then it becomes refreshing to you, and you've got the enthusiasm to do it. So, yeah, throw it in the bin and don't worry about it.
throw it in the bin and forget about it. That might be my new motto. What about you? Do you want that one too? We can both use it. I think it would make life a lot easier. Uh, Glenn Campling, Tones on Tail, great chat. I don't know what happened. I think the uh, the uh, something out there knew it was our Halloween episode, so they added a ghostly effect at the end. I don't know why that happened. My intern Hannah looks completely stunned. Uh, she has no answers. I have no answers. But you know what? Throw it in the bin and forget about it. <laughs> See? Look how easy it is. Your life is going to be so easy from now on if you uh, go that direction. Uh, I don't know what direction you get your podcast from. What platform do you go to? Is it Apple Music? Is it Spotify? Is it Stitcher? Last FM? iHeartRadio? Well, guess what? Stereo Embers, the podcast, is on all of those. So go where you go and uh, subscribe. Maybe leave a nice review, a couple of stars. It would mean a lot to us, okay? If you took the time to do something like that, we would very much appreciate it. So thank you in advance for doing that. Now, if you want to keep up with me on social media, uh, please do so on Twitter at Embers Editor or on Instagram. Embers Podcast is how you can find me or just email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Okay? All right. Yeah, write me. I'll answer you. I'm one of those guys. I'm one of the answer back guys. No, no note gets left unanswered. Now, I thought it would be fun to close the show with some of that live stuff that Glenn unearthed. So here is one of my favorite of those tracks. This is called There Is Only One. And it was recorded in May of 1984 in Glasgow. So enjoy it. And I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio.
Come on, I'm gonna get this on film. This. Wait a minute. Can we get sound on? Attach a load of um, smoke pellets to the manifold. Oh really? Yep. What? So the one that gets hot. Yep. You rotten bastard. You're gonna do that? Well, we want it, but we can't get inside the damn typical, thing. Typical, typical English slovenly. Look. Just chucks his fucking paper. Chucks his fucking paper on the floor. Look. look. He was very, very rubbish. <laughs> I can't find the bloody stuff. <laughs>